This is Grace Cho, from Entrepreneur's Creative Careers Podcast. Today we speak to Jim Furlong. He has served as a director of arts for the Hudson Guild since 1994. As director of the Guild's resident theater company, he has staged over 60 productions, including his original adaptations of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, The Arabian Nights, Hamlet, Don Quixote, and many more. As curator of the Guild's two gallery spaces, He has mounted over 200 exhibits of visual artwork in all media. He began his career as a stage manager of the Brooklyn Academy of Music and New York Shakespeare Festival. From there, he went on to work as stage director for the famed New York City Opera, as well as opera houses in Santa Fe, San Diego, Chicago, Memphis, Amsterdam, and Taipei before coming to Hudson Guild. So today we have this great pleasure of speaking to Jim and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. Okay, Jim, please tell us again, what do you do at the Hudson Guild? Yes, I provide different kinds of arts programs to people in our community, many of whom come from low-income backgrounds and underserved populations both visual and performing arts, to educate them about contemporary trends in the performing arts, to bring high-quality performers and visual artists to the Guild, and also then to provide opportunities for those who are interested to make their own art. Wonderful. You've been in this position for a long time. Since 1994. Wow. So you have a lot of experience under your belt and you don't recommend art to people as a career. Why is that? Because I believe that those who are successful in the arts are those for whom there is no other choice but to pursue a career in the arts. Now, this is a big generalization, of course. There's the famous insurance salesman from Hartford, Wallace Stevens, I think, who was a celebrated poet. But those kind of people who split careers are few and far between. And so if you want to go into the arts, or if you need to go into the arts, I believe that is what you will do on your own. And because it is such a highly competitive and difficult life, I wouldn't suggest it say, oh, are you interested in accounting or banking or getting an MBA? I think it's almost natural selection for those who become successful in the arts Mm -hmm. as a living. It's a very realistic point of view, very practical one. And you say this because you recognize the challenges of an art career. Yes. And what are some of those challenges that that you've seen or you've experienced yourself? Well, a great percentage of jobs in the arts are lower income than similar middle management positions in business or medicine, etc. So I'm not talking about stars and the super wealthy. If we can talk about the, you know, the line workers, in that regard, the pay level is lower than if you are in business or medicine, let's say. And 
one of the reasons the pay level is lower is because there is so much competition and it's a buyer's market, I guess. And that's uh, very sage advice. It is what it is. And you, you're right. going into it with eyes wide open. And if you recognize some of that information, if they're still compelled to do it, then maybe... Right. Now, it's funny to say you're going into way. it with eyes wide open, but right. it, because, of course, many artists approach things in life without eyes wide open, with a kind of blinkered, illusional, borderline on disillusional, or super hyper-focused on one thing without seeing the totality. You know, like one summer I spent directing a little Duke Ellington Shakespeare piece at a jazz club, The Knitting Factory. They may have closed by now. Oh, it was the greatest thing. I loved it, getting up, going down, working with five actors. But it was peanuts, you know. And so I didn't go on vacation that summer. I didn't go out to dinner much. It was just the work. And I was fine with it because that's where I wanted to be. Great example. I was close with my father. He worked for Merrill Lynch for most of, most of his adult life. He loved sports. He loved arts, too. And he, he took me to the theater a lot as a boy, especially when he, could, he saw that I wasn't interested in sports. He would take me off by himself, and we'd go see a show together. But he tried to instill in me, he tried to get me to have broader interests. Oh, Jim, go to a baseball game once in a while. Or, oh, Jim, go visit the Intrepid Museum. He never, he never understood why I never went to the Intrepid. And he did have a point about life, I think, that you need to be well-rounded. Or you don't need to be, but it is good to be well-rounded, to have a lot of different interests. But as I matured, it just became clearer and clearer that I was hyper-focused on the things I loved, making theater, you know, organizing art exhibits. And I live, breathe, eat it 24-7. And it's hard for me to kind of unwind with anything else. And perhaps more passionate now for it because of those well-rounded experiences. For me, I personally, I have to experience a lot of different things. I pan, I scope. And only after I've experienced all those, all those things, I finally say, oh my God, this is truly the thing I want to see. And it gets even more intense, my love for whatever it is that I want to do. Because I know clearly what I don't want to do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. When you take on this life of art, what do you learn about yourself, about people? Well, you learn to recognize beauty in unusual places, poetry in unusual places. Some people walk around and see the asphalt, the gray brick, and the dinginess of it. And when you're an artist, it's almost like you naturally notice more of the beauty which surrounds us. And the same thing with people, and especially at Hudson Guild, working with people, you know, with problems and mental health issues and all. But when you get to know all these different types of people, 
you see the unusual things that are beautiful about them. Mm. That's, that's one of the most uh, compelling things I've ever heard. I think that's an amazing statement. It is the beauty of art. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. I do say, now I've been studying opera since 1979. Opera never lets me down. Opera always has something to offer me and to enrich my day-to-day existence. And I take so much from opera. And when I teach my opera class, I talk about politics and culture and psychology and history. It's just like, it's never boring. When I was a child, one of my biggest issues was fighting boredom. And then, of course, as I matured, I realized there's no reason for anyone to be bored, really, on this earth with all it has to offer us, and especially in this city, uh, particularly. But And I had my lovely neighbor later in her life. I said, well, Nina, what do you do all day? And she said, uh, oh, I ne- I'm never bored, Jim. I always have something. I'm interested in doing. You know, managing boredom is a challenge that everyone has to face in life, I think. It can be easy to succumb to it, to give up, to turn on the TV and watch reruns or the news. And But I had a teacher who had very little patience for anyone who would say they were bored. You you have such great advice. Art alleviates boredom. Art is an escape from boredom. And that's just the start. Then it enriches and it enlivens and it, it expands upon itself. But I think that's the beginning. How beautiful. I love that. My next question touches on that. You mentioned the theme of joy. Right. Tell me more about that. You know, I have to admit, and you, you've known me a little now, I am an enthusiastic person. Mm-hmm. I seek joy. I create joy. Joy just doesn't happen. It's work, creating mm-hmm. rich relationships with friends. Well, part of it's um, knowledge and, you know, when, when you read the newspaper, when you see what's going on, when you really are up on things, then you can approach life Well, you can either like get super depressed and say the world's going to hell in a handbag, but you can also then use wit to process the insanity and manage the insanity. It's very important. You know, for me, sense of humor is key to good mental health. It's amazing what what art can do, right? If you think about it, purely on a sort of a physical basis. It's just some paint on canvas. Right. When you think about plays, it's just words. Right. Right. What somebody says. It's amazing what value that brings to life, isn't it? It is. And yet I started my stage fright theater workshop last week. And uh, a lot of the people were there because they want to study acting and they're not even really clear about why they want to study acting. but it appeals more than directing, designing. 
and writing. And I even changed the outreach materials. I renamed it Stage Fright Acting Workshop. The first material said Stage Fright Theater Workshop. And yet, I confessed that to the class, but I said, I want this class to be more about, more than just about acting. I want it to be about theater. And the first question is, why theater? Why bother? And when you think about it, you know, we need to clothe ourselves, feed ourselves, provide ourselves with shelter if we choose to have families, take care of our families. Putting on plays can be pretty frivolous compared to the basic things we need to do for survival. But of course, that's what separates us from the apes and the, the lower forms of animal life. And yet, you know, in, if you study zoology and especially the apes, of course, so many, and we're learning this more and more about animals, I think, they do have their own creative forms of play mimicking ours or are the basis of what we do and expand upon in terms of play. That's right. Uh, another thing that's important, a friend of mine taught this, not afraid to throw things out. You know, it, to make art, you can't be a conservationist. It's kind of against the ecology thing. You have to waste paint. I like hard, when I do my writing, I like hard copy. I don't want everything on a computer. And if I do a draft and I put red lines through it and then I retype it, then I chuck out 40 pieces of paper or I hopefully recycle them, right? You cannot be cautious about waste when you're making art. You need the ability to make a mess and you need the ability to throw things out. You know, Brahms burned apparently a third of his output before he died. And mm. think, you know, every musicologist around would love any shred of Brahms, but that was his choice. He didn't want anything that anyone might consider less than his higher standard. And Julia Child, she chucked things out on her television show. Oh, well, it didn't quite rise the way I wanted to. <laughs> I think that is absolutely correct. A hundred percent agree. I do a little painting myself and there are more sketches that I've thrown out. Oh yeah. Then you wouldn't believe the entire sketchbook sure. full of them. It's okay to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. The great philosopher <laughs> that you are. Well, you know, philosophy is one of my favorite past things to read about. But do you agree that it, because of all the the interests that you have, everything from writing and philosophy, and it must make the art that you create that much more richer. I think so. And I don't think you can be a good theater artist unless you're, and this is what I've been saying in my workshop. I listed skills, you know, improvisation, physical elasticity, vocal strength. And then at the bottom of the list, I put research in bold caps. And I said, you've got to have a natural curiosity for more than just the act of memorizing lines and having people look at you on stage. There's a bit of narcissism involved. And I, I feel about English actors, I don't like to drop names too much, but I am going to drop one name. One of my good friends is Patricia Routledge. She does this 
sitcom Keeping Up Appearances, where she plays a very snooty a character out of Moliere. But when I met Patricia, my first trip to England, there was someone sitting in my window seat. I said, could you please move? I have the window. And so she moved to the center. And then we started talking and, oh, what are you doing? I'm going to England. I'm a theater student. And she started talking about some plays she had seen. And then, what's your last name? And I said, Furlong. And what's yours? Routledge. And I said to her, oh, you know, there's an actress by the name of Patricia Routledge. And I think she won a Tony Award in 66. And she played along. About an hour and a half later on the trip, we talked about Laurence Olivier. And she said, she said, oh, I've met Lord Olivier. I've been kissed by Lord Olivier. And I said to her, are you Patricia Routledge? And that began a 44-year friendship. But what I learned from her, she was doing a play called Semmelweis by Howard Sackler, who wrote The Great White Hope. Anyway, she played Semmelweis's sister. It wasn't a major role. But when she talked about it, she talked about the play, the context. She didn't just talk about her role. And my impression was that English actors see theater a little more of the totality than many American actors who are more concerned about, oh, I have, I have three scenes and one's a really good scene and I've got a great number in the second act. And uh, can you teach someone that? I don't know. It certainly makes for a better artist. I cannot agree with you more. Yeah. It all points to that one word that you mentioned, curiosity. Right, right. You must discover what makes you curious. This kind of ties into this curiosity and this richness of character topic, the power of good writing skills. How does that help your life? Good writing skills are a tangible way to let someone else know who you are and what you're about and to get a clear take on who you are. And if you're inarticulate, you have a harder time being yourself out in the world. And then writing, of course, it's, I hate to say it, it's about economics, really, that now there are exceptions, of course. There are brilliant craftsmen who make furniture and do pottery, and some are dyslexic and some have, you know, but in so many professions, writing is where it begins. If you want to work in Hollywood, you got to learn how to write a screenplay. If you want to go into journalism, you need to write clearly and carefully. You need to take responsibility for the way you're putting things. Or if you want to get the attention of somebody important. People aren't going to pay attention to form letters. They're going to throw them in a stack. But if something is written well and stands out, and again, shows a sense of wit and erudition and original thinking that is only going to help an individual rise further to the top. Excellent advice. I wanted to focus on this point because so many people have forgotten of the, you know, the, the power of a good written note. Oh, I know. I know. And a thank you note. I'm a real stickler for thank you notes. This last topic I wanted to touch on is one that doesn't normally come up, 
with people in the arts for some reason, in my experience. It's the concept of leadership. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's a skill that's important to succeed in certain parts of the arts, but not all. Look at Joseph Cornell. He made these wonderful three-dimensional boxes that are collages. He was obsessed with Hollywood beauties, and he'd put a photo of Hedy Lamarr next to a branch. And But anyway, he worked in relative solitude in the basement of his parents' house. So I wouldn't say Corn- Cornell's a great artist, but he was not a leader. He, he, was, he had a very insular world. I talk about leadership because I'm a director. I don't think that, I mean, there have been occasional theater companies, especially in the 60s, group collective decisions. But in general, I think uh, theater needs a hierarchy to work effectively. So, Jim, I, I can listen to you all day long. You're Thank the master you. of words, honestly. It's just such sound and practical advice. Some of it is actually quite, it's like going to the dentist. You know it's the right thing to do. Right. Everybody tells right. you, Common you sense. just need to hear it. Yeah. You just need to hear it. And you say it beautifully. And the, I mean, yeah. you are the master, master thespian. Well, I'm so blessed. That you, you know, um, we're putting together um, a playlist on YouTube of, uh, right now there's 12 or 15 little videos of projects I've done since 2010. And, you know, well, you'll see some of it's rough around the edges. But in general, the interviews with the kids and the teens and the seniors, it made me so proud of what I have accomplished. I'm going to I'm going to be boastful. And what did you realize as you were going through this? Obviously, pride. What else struck you about looking at yourself? I have a danger sometimes in my job here, like. Am I doing this project for me because I like Shakespeare or I like Chekhov? Or is it really for the community? But what was the best part of the clips I watched was the interviews with the kids from the projects and the old people. And and I really got a tangible sense. You know, people say, oh, you're affecting so many people's lives. And You know, Grace, there's a part of me that's sad and disappointed that I'm not directing at the Metropolitan Opera House. You know, I did want that for myself, but it wasn't meant to be. And meanwhile, the beauty of these people getting interviewed and and the kids dancing and having joy and, and almost the lack of sophistication in these beautiful, you know, people with very unguarded natural responses to being in the arts, I mean, that has its advantage over working with jaded, super powerful, super talents. Yeah. That was beautiful, Jim, because what you just did was defined fulfillment for me. Uh, it's a heartfelt comment well received 